0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining us on Michigan Minds. Can you please introduce yourself to me and our audience and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? So I'm Beth Glover-Reed.
1: I have an appoint a major appointment in the School of Social Work and a, a courtesy appointment in the Department in women's Studies in the LSNA a school and in earlier times, I was even more centrally involved at what they are now calling women's and gender studies and I've been here a while and had lots of phases of my career. Um, I was trained initially as a community and clinical psychologist with a lot of supervised applied experience, including a lot of experiences in facilitating groups and um, community meetings of a variety of kinds. And they they include therapeutic groups, planning groups, human development groups. Um, So a lot of experience in the Meso arena, as well as experience in human psychology and, and problems and larger community systems. And some of that was during the anti-poverty, the war on poverty. And it was also in the middle of the civil rights movement. So a lot of it was about uh, anti-oppression and, and pro-justice work. So I brought all of that to the school. Uh, and And my career has had a lot of phases. Sometimes I've been working on somewhat different topics, and sometimes heavily inside the university and sometimes
0: heavily outside the university. Thank you. And in what areas does your research focus? Well, I have had a
1: longstanding interest in education. My first job out of graduate school was working with K through 12 teachers uh, on diversifying the curriculum and including, and and also social justice issues that teachers were facing. Um, And then I moved to do clinical work uh, and and then some community work on housing initiatives and then at the Drug Dependence Institute at Yale, where we were really trying to build capacity within the alcohol and drug system by training counselors, by training community people, by training by working on prevention models, uh, so that that's kind of the route that I came to social work. My dissertation focused on women and leadership in small groups, which grew out of my own experience in grad school when I when I suddenly realized when I was pretty far along in my training and had occasion to be facilitating by myself. Uh, Their facilitation model was two people. And and since there were very few women in the program, I had always been paired with a male prior to that. And I suddenly realized on my feet facing this group that everything was not going the way it usually did. And, And that led me to think about where that knowledge came from about group dynamics and group development and leadership and it it was mostly developed by white men in research with white men and in organizations that were heavily populated by white men and it turns out that it is quite different when when your leader or person is is not white and not male and that sort of got me really interested in how all these how knowledge production matters in terms of social justice questions and also how all of these all of our assumptions about these meso level processes may be highly skewed by how the not that knowledge was developed which has huge implications for how we train people to go be leaders to move towards social justice so that's my dissertation and then, then I was hired at the School of Social Work cuz they had a substance abuse grant It was a dual career hire, so we were trying to find jobs for two of us, and I had this background in substance abuse because of my work at the Drug Dependence Institute, and um, so I was hired in originally to try and increase the curriculum in alcohol and drugs uh, in in social work, and they quickly recognized that I knew something about gender and about communities, so I, I taught. Anyway, my first big outside grant was, was as part of a big national project to develop and evaluate services for women in substance abuse. Um, that field tended to be developed over time by men and much more focused by on the kinds of problems that men with substance abuse problems have. Women look very differently and the existing literature sort of said that we're not doing as well in treating women or reaching even convincing women to come to treatment because they're less motivated, they're sicker than men, or they, they or anyway, not, not thinking about maybe our outreach systems aren't working well for women because they weren't designed for women. And um, the sicker then has to do with um, how how women and men present psychologically uh, women are more depressed and anxious, more overtly depressed and anxious, um, and have a lot of symptoms of trauma. And that isn't sicker than the kinds of symptoms that men had, it's are just different. And actually they're easier to work with than the many of the defense mechanisms that men have. So we had to do a lot of reframing basic assumptions about substance abuse systems And a piece of that was also about the consequences of violence, because most of the women who were coming to these programs were in violent and exploitive relationships. And they often had to figure out how to get out of those relationships uh, or change them in order to develop a recovery program for themselves. So that embarked me on, again, thinking about these larger system and conceptual issues In addition to the actual services we were trying to provide since then i've been focused on teaching and how all these forces operate in the classroom and thinking about violence against women in
0: general in a variety of of, um, situations. Do you have a framework that guides your work.
1: Probably multiple frameworks, but I think there are two major principles across the board that are relevant in everything I do, Um, and one of them is um, what we're now calling critical intersectionality. The critical part of it comes from conceptual frameworks and work that are, are really designed to understand how power works and to understand the forces that led to things like the Holocaust and slavery and you know ma- mass murders and, and uh, intimate partner violence. And not only to understand them, but also with an agenda to stop them or to cre- create a vision of a world where those things didn't happen because you understood their causes well enough to reduce them and or eliminate them. Uh, The intersectionality part is a word coined relatively recently in in the late 80s by Kimberly Crenshaw, who was a legal scholar, um, who was focused on why legal remedies focused only on race or only on gender or only on class, um, just plain don't work as well when you have all three of those things or two two of the three happening because women of color were consistently not succeeding in some of their harassment claims or domestic violence um, issues. And partly because these concepts work together and thinking about them just one at a time does not take into account how the systemic forces on them are working together and have different consequences in different contexts. Though this concept has been out there raised heavily by women of color activists and scholars for hundreds of years, but Kimberle Crenshaw gave it a name. And intersectionality essentially is about how all these isms work together, and that you can't just think about race or just think about gender or just think about class or sexual sexuality uh, or religion or age uh, or disability. All of these things that that lead to patterns of discrimination and exclusion, uh, that you've got to think about them together. Uh, so that's one principle that guides me, and the other is is something called praxis, p-r-a-x-i-s, um, which which was kind of developed into a method, a, a, both a framework and a method, by Paulo Freire, uh, a Brazilian educator, uh, who started out being Interested in adult education among among people who were who were uh, very much left out of society, and he realized that people needed to be able to theorize their environments. They needed to understand their environments differently, in order not to be blaming themselves for things that are being done to them. Uh, but that they also needed to take action to uh, change some of those environments as part of their uh, educational process. So praxis is often drawn as a triangle with kind of theorizing or analytic frameworks in one corner and take action for change in another corner. And then the third corner is really important. It means reflecting on how well your frameworks work, how well the the uh, action worked and also what was your role and the people you were working with in that action. And so how did all those meso-processes influence whether you're theorizing and uh, got you to the actions and the goals you wanted to get to. Um, and that theory, that theory without testing it in action is, is just theory. And and you modify theory by seeing whether it works uh, in the world, and the other side of that would be to say taking action for change without an analytic framework and some in-depth understanding of causes and dynamics and how things are working over time is is uh, not going to get you to the goals that you want to get. And then the third thing is that it takes collective reflection. You can't do this by yourself. You've got to do it with people who are different from you uh, to get all the different perspectives in there. Um, And that part of the way in which you do this work that connects uh, analytic frameworks and actions for change for justice is this process of reflection. And some, some people will call it reflexivity processes. So those things influence everything I have done. So it means if I start with theory and research, I'm often then trying to figure out how to do it in the world, how to make it work in the world. And um, it has led me to a lot of services research and participatory action research projects where you're deliberately enacting a change Uh, along with whatever research you're doing. And you are often doing it very collaboratively with community-based folk who are either implementing the intervention or the activist groups that are working for change in the larger world. So those, I have used a lot of those methods, both inside the university
0: and in various community and contexts from local to national. Thank you so much for sharing that. One of your main research areas explores how to define and work for social justice. What are some of the barriers in society that you examine and seek ways to reduce?
1: Well, a major one is that people don't see them. And, that, and when they do see them, they often misunderstand them. And um, so we go whacking away at the consequences of depression and don't always understand the causes of oppression, and also how complex they are. And Crenshaw and others talk about the importance of a temporal domain, which is it's really important how to understand how things got to be the way they are, and how they've evolved over time, because that that history is still active in the present, and it can really help you understand uh, why things are the way they are, And then within that, you've got to understand all the moving pieces. Uh, Patricia Hill Collins defines these as structural things in societal institutions, our organizations, our policies, um, even how we design spaces, physical spaces. And then there's the cultural interpretive domains, which is how we understand things, what what theories we have, what monuments we develop to celebrate a lot of the things that anthropologists study that create meaning and commonalities among different cultural groupings. And then there's the social processes, social processes, in terms of how do all these things work in our day-to-day uh, enactment of things, uh, planning, implementation, group, you know, decision making. Uh, supervision, the ways in which all these systems get operationalized, and then you've got how do we all participate in that through our interpersonal relationships, and also how we internalize and understand things within ourselves, and these all interact, and they're hard to understand. They're very complex. Um, A lot of my work has been to try and name those things to, to uncover them, to make them visible, um, and to kind of demonstrate how they work, but also how they work differently for different kinds of people in different kinds of contexts. Because it won't be the same if you're dealing with, you know, African American race issues and you're 65 and you're gay, uh, you are going to be dealing with a different environment than if you're 30 years younger and white and and affluent, even if you are also gay. That's some of the complexity that that all of my work has tried to address. And I should say, one of the things that gets me into methodologically is something within social work that gets called practice-based evidence. So there's a lot of work about how do you go from research to figuring out the implications for interventions and change And then you you try out the interventions to figure out what works and what is necessary and what isn't and and what kind of outcomes it's produced. Um, That's called evidence-based practice. For practice-based evidence, you're looking for the people that are out there making the innovations and doing the work and trying to understand what they're doing and, and what they've learned by doing that. So you're essentially learning from the pioneers and the innovators, and then trying to theorize from that to say, what then should other people be doing to be furthering this field or addressing this goal or problem?
0: And can you talk a bit about how gender and ethnicity impact experiences in social systems?
1: I've given you an example of substance abuse systems and, and small group dynamics, um, you know, they become status markers, which then influence how people perceive things and may even influence how structures get developed. Um, because a lot of what we do in small groups and in social systems is to either challenge or reify existing societal stratifications they influence everything, uh, and you know what gets rewarded, what what words we value and use to explain things, uh, how we interact with each other, uh, what we value in terms of performance evaluations, and and uh, and also what we choose to see in terms of people's behaviors. If we value the person in general, we tend to see the more positive things. And if we, we have less valued characteristics about that person, uh, that may influence that, that all the non-conscious biases that are kind of built in that in order to resist them, you have you have to be able to see them and name them and and work to resist them. Uh, But they also get institutionalized in our everyday practices too, what intervention models we choose, how we uh, we
0: make decisions. Can you share insight from your current research that is designed to identify approaches for working on alcohol and other drug related issues and intimate partner violence?
1: Yeah, those t- I picked those two systems, partly because I had experience in both of them and cared about both of them, but also because those systems are very differently gendered. Uh, the substance abuse field, and I'm oversimplifying here, but uh, was developed mostly by men and has focused historically on a lot of the consequences of addiction that are that happen more often in men than in women. So more concerned about public violence and crime and m- much less about impacts on households and things. So you have a field that has a lot of assumptions built into it, uh, not on purpose, uh, but because of who developed it and, and what kinds of uh, problems or goals they were trying to tackle. And the domestic violence field or the intimate partner violence or partner abuse, however you want to call it, came out of feminist activism and a pretty seriously gendered gender analysis of the of the causes and consequences of intimate partner violence and while both sides of that theoretically are getting critiqued now in terms of of how gendered they were, um, they've created different kinds of paradigms for the field. and um, so their understanding of what they're doing is quite different. So like if you if a, a lot of times violence isn't recognized more now than it used to be. And when it was, it was often seen as an anger and ma- anger management issue that required skills and and psychological work for people to be able to change uh, uh, versus an enactment of kind of societal notions about men's and women's roles and what was acceptable. So, So then, you know, programs put in anger management classes and it wasn't that they were necessarily ignoring it altogether not contextualizing it the way that the intimate partner violence field did. And on the intimate partner violence side, lots of times people shared attitudes about women with substance abuse problems who were more stigmatized than men and and, uh, kind of seen as kind of fallen women. And also not a lot of understanding necessarily about how, how addiction affects people biologically and behaviorally and that it's not easy to change. Um, so, so that's at the paradigm level, and then you develop very different kinds of interventions given what your goals are. And, and then there are different fundings. So the substance abuse field moved into being a kind of healthcare-oriented uh, profession from, an early, from earlier models and to get insurance and to make it be part of behavioral health. Uh, whereas the domestic violence field moved more towards saying in intimate partner violence is a crime, and and it needs to be understood as a crime and not just a family issue, and people need to be held accountable for that crime. Those are very different paradigms, and then you have different funding sources from the healthcare side, insurance, and uh, and different monitoring systems because it's healthcare versus funding from the Violence Against Women Act that that tends to be bundled differently and enacted differently. Uh, So you've got structures and cultural things and processes in both these fields that are quite different from each other, often not understood by the other field and are really hard to put together and coordinate. So it just seemed like a perfect way to go learn about how these tensions are are experienced in the field and also what people have done to overcome them and to create hybrid models that allow them to to address both sets of issues.
0: How does your work at the School of Social Work relate or support your research in women's studies at the Institute for Research on Women and Gender? Both the fields of
1: various kinds of feminism and intersectionality and social work care about justice and they care about change for justice. Women's studies, because it's in LSNA, tends to be more strongly theoretical about analysis of causes and, and, um, and rigorous methods. For um, uh, creating epistemologies and methodologies for doing good, good scholarly work towards social justice goals, but but with less, less emphasis on implementing those social justice goals. Although women's studies and feminist studies programs have been have made profound changes within academia. Uh, and we train a lot of people to go out and work for change in the world. Social work is about change in the world and it's about addressing problems directly. It's a professional school, not not just an academic department. So it's very focused on training people to go out and do things. Uh, And the doing things could be interpersonal practice where you're helping people Uh, Address problems they're having or working towards goals they want to address, and it can also include public policy work, creating and implementing policies or working with communities to figure out how to address their identify and address their own goals. Um, But it's very action focused and historically it's been very focused on addressing the consequences of oppression. It's moving now much more towards trying to define what what justice is or should be, and then how do we how do we move towards justice at the same time that we're trying to solve problems. But my experience of having a foot in both departments simultaneously is that it's helped me with praxis, uh, because because the theorizing part happens differently at women's studies than it does at social work. And the action part happens differently there and then and also how my community work and activism work is understood is is different in in each of the units as well. Um, so I see them as balancing and and synergizing uh, a lot of my work, and also the differences have helped me. Remember I said, one of the things you have to do is to kind of see how things are working. And when you have membership in more than one unit, you have to understand how they're similar and different. And that helps you see some of the major things that are happening in each of the units because you're having to always negotiate both of them.
0: Thank you. The month of March celebrates Social Work Month. As faculty at the School of Social Work, can you describe the importance of recognizing the research and impact of those in the field of social work? Uh, I I just was part of a team that put
1: out a special issue of social work research on critical intersectionality. And um, one of the things that, that we ended up concluding is that in terms of these these theoretical evolutions, social work works on the interface between all these things and how they get how they get enacted in the world, because social workers are out there doing things, and social work researchers are out there studying the process of doing things. Uh, and that's very under theorized in the whole intersectionality and social justice world. We we understand much better societal structures and all these cultural things, things get internalized. But but how we how we keep repeating all of these patterns happens in our everyday interactions and how we implement things. And that's where social work research has a huge potential to make contributions and is already making contributions. And I was gonna say the other thing about social work is. They're out there on the front lines, tackling things that nobody, that other people don't even want to admit exist, let alone get out there and try and work on them. And uh, their the, frontline workers are the students we train, and critically important and undervalued within the
0: larger society. Um, and in addition to Social Work Month, March also celebrates Women's History Month. As a faculty member who has a research concentration on feminism and social justice, can you describe the importance of putting emphasis on the impact women have had in communities throughout history? Well, I, it's hard for me to not say enough on this topic.
1: Uh, I, I, one anecdote, I because I, social work was actually heavily developed by women more than most professions. Uh, not entirely by women, there, but but a, there were a lot of really important women in the history of the development of social work, and many more women who are who come to school to be social workers. Um, and I remember earlier in my career, uh, we had a faculty member who really specialized. His hobby was kind of the history of women in social work. And she came and gave a rousing talk of all these important women in social work over a hundred years in a course I was teaching on women and social work. And the students went after that uh, to a class on, on, you know, social welfare policies and services. And it happened to be a lecture about kind of major theories and theorists in social welfare policies and services and no women were mentioned by the instructor, and you know the students had just come from this rousing lecture about all these women and mentioned some of the women and were told that they were minor theorists um, and part of the problem with that with that with with the erasure of all these folks is that you end up getting a very incomplete picture of the history of a field or uh or major inventions or innovations that never took hold because they they were developed by women or by people of color. Uh, And they also leave important things out of our history and understanding our history and how we got where we are is really critical to understanding our present and some of the biases that are sort of baked into what we do every day.
0: What is something you hope everyone listening remembers from this conversation? Social justice and other
1: critical justice is really important. And distortions that come from injustice um, affect a lot of things in society. So infusing attention to justice and and recognizing uncovering and challenging those distortions is important in all fields and all kinds of research and teaching and practice not just when you're narrowing in on a particular form of injustice you also can't do that i don't think without having some positive vision of what would a just world look like we could whack away at the consequences of injustice and and actually improve, have less injustice in the world and still not necessarily be headed towards some better culture and some more fair and equitable uh, environment. And then you need to think about fair and equitable for whom and in what
0: arenas and what locations and as the podcast comes to a close, is there anything else you'd like to share? I guess I guess another thing is about
1: the importance of activism within the university, um, which is you know especially at, at multiple stages. We're we're now in a in a de de and i era where we're using the term diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, In earlier phases, there was, at least at Michigan, there was the Michigan mandate, which was very focused on race and ethnicity. I was part of a a group of women that we called the Women's Initiative Group that developed a kind of plan for women. And a a lot of changes in the university happened out of both of those plans and student activism and faculty support for student activism was a major part of those things working. So faculty and students within universities as well as outside um, need to be kind of thinking about how we're managing
0: these issues inside. Thank you so much, Dr. Glover-Reed for taking the time out of your day today to educate me and our audience on your research and your work within the community. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.